All right, good morning. I, I w- was sitting here in, in the midst of worship and was getting ready to come up, and I realized the last two pages of my sermon didn't print. I'm like, no! <laughs> I was up late doing those last two pages. And, uh, and so when I get toward the end, if I pull on my smartphone, I'm not texting. Um, I'm trying to figure out and remember what it is that I, I wanted to preach. In just a moment, Lauren's going to come and read for us. Um, last August, um, I enjoyed something that Seattleites in, uh, enjoy every year called Seafair. How many of you guys have ever been to Seafair? Uh, and I went down with some friends of mine to the waterfront down in Juanita Beach. And um, there were just people all over boats, all over the docks. There was music and it was really, really hot. And it was fun. And we sat on the boat and every, no one would, would dare leave their, their, uh, their dock because if you leave, someone else is waiting to take your spot. And so we had enjoyed an incredible time. All of us, our dads, our, our daughters go to school together. And, uh, and the sun began to set and as it began to get dark out, we realized we had a couple of rally neighbors. These two guys who must have been in their early 30s drank way too much and decided that the four of us looked like good uh, uh, guys to harass. Uh, and so they began to come over. At first it was a little annoying. They just kept talking and talking and talking, which I'm a talker, you guys know me. But they would not stop. And then they realized that we didn't want to talk anymore and they started to get offended. And then it got awkward. And then they began to get belligerent, particularly one of them. And at one point, as we were all seated and had told them to leave multiple times, this young man, who would certainly be able to beat me up, uh, said to one of my friends some things about his wife that I didn't care for. And I found myself standing. Now, if you're a guy, you know that whenever you stand in a heated moment, that means something. It means you better stop. Now, I don't know that I would have done much damage to this guy, but I was standing. I was angry. I was offended. Thankfully, no one uh, went into the lake that night, including me. Um, I do confess that that young man made a lot of money, and and his uh, platinum whiskey cup is now on the bottom of Lake Washington. Um, But I got home that night, um, and I was laying in bed. And very gently, I could hear the Holy Spirit say to me, Bless those who curse you. And in that moment, I realized I'd failed. I didn't swing a fist, but I'd gotten caught up in the wrong kingdom. I'd gotten caught up in the revelry these guys were serving us. And I'd forgotten that there's a kingdom that's present that I lost sight of. And I wondered to myself, with all the ambition and desire that I have to be a fruitful man of God. I bet some of you this morning want to be fruitful people. Whenever you see the Lord, that he might say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder to myself, how can I be fruitful when I'm so susceptible to missing the mark? Look at your bulletin for a moment. There's a verse in there that I have on the inside from Matthew 13. Jesus talks about this issue of being fruitful in the chapter of 13 of Matthew. And listen to this. This is Peterson. Peterson's uh, version of verse 23. The seed that's cast on good earth is the person who hears and takes in the news 
and then produces a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. See, even in the midst of being susceptible to missing the mark, we can be a people who are fruitful beyond our wildest dreams. And this morning I want to explore how is that possible though we miss the mark. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, there's a Bible right in front of you if you didn't bring one. And we're going to be in verses 18 through 23. In just a moment, Lauren's going to read verses 18 through 23. While you're turning, though, I want to summarize and catch us up to verse 18. Because Jesus does something in in Matthew 13 with this parable that he really doesn't do in his ministry, often at least as it's recorded. And in this parable, he tells this teaching which is illustrative and it's uh, a picture of his kingdom. He essentially, in verses 1-17, through tells this crowd that is gathered that there is a farmer who plants seed. And there are four soils that this seed falls on. There's pathway. I call it pathway dirt. The second is rocky dirt. The third is thorny dirt. And the final is the good dirt. And of these four dirts, only one bears fruit. And the crowd, after Jesus tells this story as typical... They're scratching their heads. They're intrigued. And the disciples say to Jesus, why do you talk to them in these bizarre imagery, images? Why don't you just talk plainly like all the other rabbis do? And Jesus then explains the parable, something he rarely does. This morning we're going to spend our time in verses 18 through 23 where Jesus actually unpacks the meaning of the imagery that's found. And so with that, I want to invite Lauren to Come and read the text. You can follow along in your uh, ESV Bible there in front, and uh, we'll continue with the message. All right, good morning. Uh, so like John said, um, we're in Matthew 13, 18 through 23 on the Pew Bibles. That's on page 818. All right. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray as we come to this text together. Father, we thank you that In this room right now, and in our hearts, you are doing a glorious work, most of which is hidden. And we confess this morning, Lord, that we are susceptible to falling short, but we come this morning trusting your great ability to lead us and to redeem. So we invite you this morning to speak to us here in these next few minutes. In your word, in Christ's name, amen. We're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the four soils. Um, But before we do that, we can't possibly understand the soils without understanding the object of the soil, which is the seed. And so as we begin to look at this parable, we see a couple of things. We see, first of all, there are two effective working parties here. 
We have on one hand the work of the seed that's sown by the farmer. This speaks of the work of God that only he can do. And we have these soils that are sown uh, in which the seed is sown. The soil and the dirt speaks of our response to God's work. We have these two basic images that Jesus unpacks for us. It's important as we come to this to understand that in our spiritual life, God, we cannot do God's job for Him, and He won't do our job for us. And so we're going to spend some time thinking about what our job, what our response is as the Lord is faithful to do His in our life. But let's look at the seed. Jesus decides to use the picture of a seed when He could have used anything to explain the kingdom. He decides to choose this little tiny object. If you're in the front row, by the way, you're going to get spit on. Allison just got it. Sorry, Allison. (laughs) He uses a tiny little seed to unpack what the kingdom of God is. Now this is amazing considering that the king of all kings and the lord of all lords is the largest of all large. He could have used anything he wanted and using something large would make a lot of sense, but instead he uses something tiny. He uses a seed. This is amazing also because the seed isn't just tiny, it's also mostly hidden. If the seed is where it needs to be, it's not even seen. He uses a seed purposely. It's said that inside of every apple seed is an orchard. That means he chooses to use this image of something he created that has so much potential. And yet oftentimes the promise that God gives us from heaven comes in seed form. It often doesn't come to us fully mature. And this is the amazing thing about the work of God as He calls us to cooperate with Him. The other thing that's interesting about the seed is that Jesus explains it as being the message about the kingdom. If you look at your Bible, you'll see Jesus says that it's the message about the kingdom. Now often this is preached and taught as, uh, in the broad sense, the seed is God's Word. And I, I believe that's fully true. The seed does represent God's Word. However, I think to be really true to what Jesus is saying here, to be tight with what He's teaching, He's speaking about a very specific teaching or focus of the Word, and we call this the message about the kingdom. Well, let's take a minute to unpack what that is. What is the message about the kingdom? First of all, it's Jesus' main message that he preaches throughout his ministry. We see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are 61 separate uh, descriptions of the kingdom of God. Now, when I hear the term kingdom, I often think of a geographical, physical location. I don't know about you. I think of, for example, the United Kingdom, where there are geographical borders. But that isn't what Jesus is meaning. He's not trying to describe the real estate that is known as heaven. Although the heaven does fit in the description of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is a more broad description of anywhere the rule and reign of God is actively being expressed. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. And here is what he said. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The word kingdom is the word basileia. Basileia means royal rule. This is the active, expressed 
rule and reign of God in a given time and space. This is what the message of the kingdom is. Tim Keller puts it well in his book, Ministries of Mercy. He says, The kingdom of God is nothing less than the power of God in heaven entering the world to heal every alienation and brokenness and every dimension of human life. Social, economical, racial, or emotional The kingdom of God is entered now through repentance and faith. It is present wherever the Holy Spirit is present in power. And so it's important as we think about what does it take for us to have a fruitful life. Jesus responds to us in Matthew 13 and he gives us this humble image of a seed. That he comes to us with this pulsating promise of his life-giving presence that's often hidden and beneath the surface. And it's something that we'll see in a moment needs nurtured and cared for, and this is our job. We'll look at that in just a moment. I'll tell a couple of stories just to make sure that we're on the same page with this idea about the message of the kingdom. In one sense, yes, the seed is God's word, but in a very specific sense, it's this awareness that we have as believers that God is near And he's full of life and he's about to work. Even now, as you're sitting listening to me, this is true of you. He is present in you and he wants to work through you and make you fruitful. Right now, he's doing that. He's doing it apart from everything I'm saying. He's been doing it before you came and he'll continue to work in and through you when you leave this place. What does that look like? Well, a couple examples. I thought of my my good friend, Dr. Stephen Sheehan. He's an optometrist in Pennsylvania. Carly and I started a youth ministry there a number of years ago. And uh, one of the things we did together as a group, we went to the Dominican Republic on a mission trip. Dr. Sheehan is, uh, decided that on this trip he wanted to serve the people by doing eye exams, uh, particularly in a village where there's Haitian refugees. And so he gathered over the course of a number of months a bunch of uh, eyeglasses that people had thrown away, hundreds of pairs of eyeglasses, uh, that were different prescriptions. And we'll never forget the time when this elderly woman came for an exam. She must have been in her 80s, a Haitian woman, only spoke Creole. And she had her exam. Dr. Sheen picked out a pair of glasses for her, put them on her face, and she begins to weep and praise God. And we're wondering, what is she saying? She had never seen clearly in her whole life. This is the first time that she had an opportunity to have her vision corrected. It was no longer blurry and she could see clearly and she was overwhelmed with praise for God. In that moment and in the moments leading up to that moment, the kingdom of God was at hand. Why? In heaven, people can see. And Dr. Sheehan didn't bring sight through prayer in that instance. He brought his obedience. He had raised support. He had gathered glasses over the course of months. He had used his skill set that he had developed to serve this woman. This woman, on the other hand, I don't know how she heard the announcement that there was going to be these missionaries there to care for them. The kingdom of God was at hand for her because she responded to God's work. And as a result, she could see the kingdom of God is anywhere God's active rule and reign is being expressed. Let me tell another story. I've got to get my phone out for this. And... Um, Diane Springs isn't in the room right now. She's caring for the kids. But she told me the story. I actually had already seen it uh, about her daughter, Karen. You guys remember Karen, right? I took a screenshot because I knew this would happen. Listen to this story. She is a missionary in Ukraine. 
and she told this story of the kingdom of God at hand. She said, I'm thanking the Lord right now for his amazing protection and his Holy Spirit tonight. My friend Milani, who was visiting from the United States, and I were walking about a mile from my house, and suddenly we were surrounded by a group of girls. Before I realized what was happening, Milani started yelling, yelling in Russian, Give it back! Give it back! I'd realized that my wallet and purse, or my, my wallet had just been stolen out of my purse. The amazing thing is that Melanie only knows a few words of Russian, and suddenly in that moment, she knew the phrase, give it back, which she says she did not know before that moment. The Lord had literally put words in her mouth, and she was so calm and firm. She spoke loudly and clearly, and I was blanking, and I had lost all my words. We held on to those girls who passed the wallet to the back of the group. And then finally, we were able to see it and get back. After the shock wore off and we got the wallet back and started walking towards home, Melanie shared and and she continues on to tell the rest of the story. Isn't that amazing? In that moment, Melanie received the gift of what we would say is tongues. It's not an other language. It was a literal physical language as in Acts 2. It was very practical, wouldn't you say? I, I was in a situation once in the subway in New York City, and I had these two young, young guys who came up to me, and I was getting my wallet out, and I was first time in the city, 18 years old, no one ever told me, don't get your wallet out and hold it in your hand in the subway, dummy. And within a couple of minutes, I found somebody pulling on it, and I was holding on it myself, and, and eventually that, the doors opened, and it was a teenager, and they left. Those moments are very, very stressful. But you know, the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God was at hand in that moment with Karen and her friend Melanie. He's always at work. He's always about redemption. Because what's in heaven is that there isn't wallets being stolen. Whenever the rule and reign of God is actively being expressed, there, aren't pick, there isn't pickpocketing happening. And in that moment, God extended His kingdom through the gift that He gave that young woman who just burst out in faith. And they all understood what she meant in their native language, a language she had never studied before. The kingdom of God was at hand there. This morning, the rule and reign of God longs to be expressed in our lives and through our lives. And the fact that you're sitting here tells me you fully believe that. But the question becomes this, how can we be fruitful when we're susceptible to missing the mark? How can we be fruitful when we're susceptible to missing the mark. And we're going to find three daily calls. For the rest of our time, we're going to look at the soils. And so look at, with me for the, at the first call, which we'll find in verse 19. I'll read it and then tell you what it is. The text says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. I call this the pathway dirt. There are four dirts. The first one is the pathway dirt. And the call that we have, the first call we have, is to nurture a fruitful life through daily connection to God's work of renewal. We nurture a fruitful life through daily connection to God's work of renewal. This pathway dirt shows us this. The call here isn't just a connection, it's also a call away from disconnection. Pathway dirt in and of itself is very important and useful. It's hard and it's compressed. 
And it's a great sort of dirt that facilitates people's coming and going. And yet it's terrible for seeds to be planted there and to flourish. It's hard. It doesn't go into the soil. People step on it and step over it. And eventually the seed gets eaten by angry birds. See, the issue here is that the person, as Jesus says, hears but does not understand. Understand, however, is important to understand. Uh, the Jewish ear would not just hear an intellectual uh, comprehension of an of a, of a idea or a truth. For the Jewish hearer, as Jesus is saying, they don't understand. It's both hearing so as to live. The Jewish concept of understanding isn't just something we entertain intellectually. It's something we hear with the full intent to live out. Jesus says they hear what I'm saying, but they have no intention of living it out. And it gives the enemy a place to steal the pulsating life of the presence of God in them and through them. And they are yielded unfruitful. It gives the enemy room to do this. It's interesting here, we don't have a lot of time to dig into this, but the disciples ask him, why are you speaking in parables? In verse 10, if you'll, you'll see it there. And Jesus replies, interesting, he says, because the knowledge of the seekers of the kingdom have been given to you. And what does Jesus mean by that? He picks favorites? I don't think so. The difference between the disciples and the crowd is that the crowd came to hear Jesus the spectacle whose words were interesting and options. The disciples had sold all they had to follow Him day in and day out, whose words were truth. You see, one group uh, are very susceptible to this pathway dirt. It's a disconnected life from the activity of God. The disciples were absolutely committed to making His words part of their active life. See, we nurture fruitfulness through daily connection to God's work of renewal in our life. I don't know if I've ever told you this. We have three crows that harass our family at the parsonage. Have you ever told about you guys about these crows? I call them Tweedledee, Tweedledum, and Tweedlebum. And I, I, I honestly didn't like crows before I moved here, and I really don't like them since... I moved here, and I really believe that all the tech, though the text doesn't say these are crows, I think they should be crows. I think crows are great representations for Satan. <laughs> I have two reasons. Uh, over the years, I have noticed that crows, not just here but everywhere, seem to find where my kid's bedroom window is, perch on the gutter, and caw as loud as they can at 5.55 in the morning. They wake them up. I don't like crows for that reason. Parents, can I get an Amen. Okay, uh, the second reason I don't like crows is that they, for whatever reason, I don't know if this was a, a Ben and Catherine thing or whether we just aren't, you know, we're, it's sort of our habits, is they know when we come out there's going to be food somewhere. Um, whether it's a, a little baggie of goldfish or whether it's just us trying to make room in our small entryway and put the trash out there so we could take it to the dumpster, Tweedledee, Tweedledum, and Tweedlebum know and they watch for us every single day just a couple weeks ago uh, my friend mika uh, made us some which is called friendship bread i think and noel and i had gone out to run an errand and we got home and i see this big paper bag flopping all over the steps and i'm like what is that and what i come to find out was tweedledum and tweedledum 
had seen and smelled the fresh bread that Mika made for us, and they had proceeded to knock it down the steps and peck it and peck it. I cannot stand these things. They are Satan incarnate. Mika, we still ate the bread. (laughs) We still ate the bread. It was good. See, here's the issue. What we're not attentive to on our porch, these crows will come and get. And to the degree we're not attentive and nurturing to God's active presence in our life, the enemy will come and steal from us. Now, you're saying, Pastor John, are you saying that believers can be impacted by the work of Satan? I am. I think Jesus is. I'm not saying necessarily you're not saved anymore. No, I'm saying look at Jesus' life. Satan actively worked against him. And wore him out at times. There were times when he was so worn out by the pressure of the enemy in his life, he needed and received ministry by angels in the wilderness. If you remember the time of his fasting. If Jesus is susceptible to the pressure of the enemy, so are we. And this text tells us that that's particularly true when we're not attentive to God's active rule and reign in our life. We nurture fruitfulness through daily connection to God's work of renewal. I wonder this morning, perhaps you've started a a Bible reading plan this year and there's something in that plan that's been standing out to you. Maybe it's from the Proverbs or the Psalms and you've been saying, I know God's in this. Or maybe there's a conviction that you know that God is calling you to in a relationship. Maybe it's to be more vocal in the way you're encouraging someone close to you because vulnerability doesn't come easy to you. And you, you're hearing in God's Word that you're, call, you're called to this life of being encouraging to those around you. The important thing is, is that can bear fruit, that conviction will bear fruit in as much as you're attentive to that conviction. And the warning here is this, that we would avoid the disconnection of not being attentive to God's Word to us and His kingdom. That's the first call, is that we nurture fruitfulness through daily connection to God's work of renewal. The second call, we nurture a fruitful life through daily commitment to God's work of renewal. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. It says, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. They say, that's a good word. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. Whenever trouble or persecution comes because of the word, you can underline that, trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The second dirt is the rocky dirt. The call is a daily commitment to God's work of renewal. The inverse of that is this, that we would resist the way of disillusionment. It's important to note that the text says that there are times when trouble comes to us or persecution comes to us because of the present active work of the Spirit in our life. Now, at a surface glance, we might be tempted to say, hey, I don't, I don't want any of that. But friends, we are living in a time of the in-between. We're living in a time when there's going to be tough stuff that comes. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus promises us. If anyone wants to claim that one today. It requires commitment to nurture the seed so that it grows and becomes 
fruitful. This shouldn't surprise us. Think just for a moment with me through the people who we admire in the, in the Word of God who faced great trouble and persecution because of the Word, because of the presence of the rule and reign of God in and through their life. Think about Joseph. God visits him and speaks to him this Word of God's presence in a dream that he had this leadership call in his life. And his brothers gave him trouble for it. And later on, Potiphar's wife did the same thing. Think of Moses and Israel who were called out of slavery by God Himself. The kingdom of God was at hand, freeing them from their pain and from their subjugation to Egypt. And yet even so, because they responded to that word, they were terrorized by Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. Think about Elijah who prophesied God's heart and was terrorized and deeply afraid of Jezebel. Think of Mary who became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And even though he was a good man and loved her well, even Joseph, who didn't understand God's work, pressured her. That could be true of some of us this morning. Maybe we're not being chased by an Egyptian army, but maybe it's those closest to us who don't understand the nature of God's work in and through us, who are lovingly and ignorantly pressuring us. That happens too. Oh, it takes a commitment to Him and a commitment to love well those around us that we would make it through to fruitfulness. And it's important to note that we know that Joseph and Mary did make it. They did make it. One more, because we could go on this on all morning. Luke chapter 7, we see this amazing image of John the Baptist who was called by Jesus the greatest man ever born of a woman. Here he is following through on the See the message of the kingdom in his life. He's attending to it with all he could. He's in the wilderness eating locusts. And uh, we see this honey that he eats. And we see him in the wilderness preaching. And thousands of people are responding to his message. Incredibly fruitful ministry. Later on in Luke 7, we see him jailed, likely waiting for his own execution because of the word. And in the darkness of those moments, he asks this question, despite all of this time, and great ministry, he says, are you, say to Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for another? Can you relate with the pain that comes when you follow Jesus and it's not easy? And maybe even this morning you're sitting here and you're experiencing that kind of pain. This kind of uh, pathway dirt, or I'm sorry, the rocky dirt calls us, number one, to recognize that when we respond to the life of God in our own life, there are times when it's going to attract trouble and persecution. You're not alone. If that's something you're going through, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in your neighborhood or in your own home, God is with you. The call is to daily commitment. I'll never forget the time a number of years ago, God had led me and inspired me in this little rural church I was in to spearhead a 3-3 three and three tournament. And so I called a friend of mine who at the time was playing for the Harlem Globetrotters. I asked him if he would come. He was also an incredible preacher, an evangelist. He had also gotten injured as well, and so he had some free time. I asked him if he would come to our little, our little rural town and help me build this 3-3 three three tournament. And long story short, he did. He actually came three years in a row and ended up 
actually preaching in the public school system where they don't like the name of Jesus being mentioned. The kids responded so uh, vibrantly to, to his message, they didn't say a word about the name of Jesus being spoken. Most of the time they have speakers in these assemblies and in the school, these schools anyways, the kids will throw spitballs and heckle the speaker. They were captivated. The first year we had 30 teams, the second year we had 40, the last year we had 50 teams. And over the course of three years, it got progressively more. We saw around 200, 200 decisions for Christ in a town of 4,000. This three and three tournament was the work of many people on a team and and it was an exciting time. And I'll tell you this, the, that didn't come without trouble. I'll never forget the last year of doing this when we saw the greatest response just weeks before we had uh, all these families who were coming in, many of them not believers to this tournament. We had this massive flood in our church. And we had tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage, ruined walls, walls had to be knocked out. Cupboards had to be replaced. And I remember that happening, and I remember thinking about this passage. Jesus said, trouble sometimes will come because of the word that I've given to you and you're running with. If you hear this morning, and God's given you a vision, He's given you uh, a heart and a passion, and you are acting out on it, maybe not perfectly, but you're taking steps to walk out this passion that He's given to you, Hear this word. You're on the right track. Your call is to daily commitment. That's the second call is that we nurture a life of fruitfulness through daily commitment to God's work of renewal despite the pressures and the persecution that comes. And let's go to the final one. I'm going to need my phone for this one. We're in verse 22. The third call is to, a, a, to nurture a fruitful life through daily communion with God in His work of renewal. It's the call to communion with God in His work of renewal. Look at the text with me. Verse 22, it says, The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful. I call this third dirt, thorny dirt. This is the dirt that calls us to resist the way of independence. It calls us to resist the way of independence. We'll look at both of these elements. We see the cares and concerns of this life. And I think a unique angle as well is the deceitfulness of wealth. I don't know about you, but... Perhaps for me, this is the most convicting of the dirts. Let's look at the first one, the deceitfulness, or I'm sorry, the cares and concerns of this wealth. I believe this is speaking about the temptation of emotional independence from God. Emotional independence from God. I don't know if there are any warriors here. Can we have true confessions? Are there any warriors here? One, two, three, I see that hand. Three, four, five. Okay, now they're coming up. I don't know if I categorize myself as a warrior. I certainly do worry. I particularly worry when I feel out of control. I particularly run things through my mind over and over again when I feel vulnerable. 
when I don't know what's coming. I don't know if anyone here can relate with that, but it's the art of worrying. And the reality of what worrying is, is what I'm saying to God is, I feel overwhelmed, I don't believe that you are good and that you are present in this situation, and so I'll take it from here. The problem is that God didn't wire us with enough horsepower to do his job. And so what happens is our engines spin and they spin and our wheels turn and turn. And internally, this is the way it works for me anyway, is I play out scenario after scenario of what could be and what could go wrong and what might go wrong. And the net effect of oftentimes, I don't know if you find this, that most of the things I fear don't actually happen. They happen in my head. But the problem is that all the way along that I was worrying, it sucks up the time that I could be having communing with God. I see a few heads nodding, so at least I'm not the only one here. You know, we're taught to worry from a young age. I was, um, I was walking to out of preschool the other day, and it's one of my favorite activities, activities of the day. Um, because she's, first of all, the last, the youngest of our kids. And, and so as my oldest is going to middle school next year, I'm trying to hold her hand a little tighter because I know it's only going to get bigger. But we're on our way walking to preschool, which is right over here. And she says to me, Daddy, don't step on the crack in the sidewalk. I say, why, Noel? Because there's, it's lava. It's lava. What happens if you step on lava? You, it melts your feet. Oh, Okay. And I keep walking and I forget. And it reminded me when I was a kid, there was a saying we used to say, if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. And how many of you remember that? I remember for a short time in my life, I actually believed that. And I'm like, my friend, like, what are you doing? I don't want to break my mom's back. Like, that isn't actually a thing. <laughs> and I paid and I observed through careful attention and noticed my mom's back was pretty strong. That's a silly thing, but throughout our lives, we have this culture and environment sometimes that fosters worrying. Sometimes we create phantom enemies that we just rehearse in our minds. Jesus is saying this, I want you to have a a life that's fruitful beyond your wildest dreams. You can't ask or imagine what it is that I want to do in you and through you. Now that doesn't necessarily mean fame and fortune and success from the world standard. From heaven's definition, it absolutely does. And Jesus goes on to say, but there's, there's a few things that will choke this. One of them is cultivating worry. It's this lifestyle of practicing, probably mostly ignorantly, emotional independence from God. God, I got this. I'll take it from here. See, anytime we don't cast our cares on Him and pray without ceasing, we're engaging in the thorny dirt. Well, that doesn't mean you're going to burn in hell. Oftentimes I think, what does that mean? Does that mean He's mad at me? Does that mean I'm... No. It means that the seed can't grow. Oh, you mean God's not just going to overcome it? Does He know I'm a warrior? My mom was like this and my grandma was like this. I can't just get over this. Come on. This is a point of sticking, a sticking point in the fruitful life of the believer. Listen, we've got to cultivate a life of emotional dependence upon him because he is good and he is faithful 
And His seed is planted in your life. And He wants to move through you and in you beyond your wildest dreams. But we've got to lean into daily communion with God in His work of renewal. That's the first element of this thorny dirt. The second, He points out this thing He calls the deceitfulness of wealth. I summarize that or rephrase that by saying this is the resistance in a pull toward material independence from God. And so if the first is emotional independence, I would observe the second appears to me to be material independence from God. Now I want to point something out because I understand that here on the east side in Redmond, Washington, we are probably one of the wealthiest communities in the world. I don't remember the number of this line or the, where the poverty lines up, but it's something like in the mid-20,000s. If you're in here and you're making somewhere around 25000 or more, you're like among the top 6% wealthy in the world. Something like that. I didn't do research for this message on that, but I remember reading this. was blown away by it. I think at the time, this was several years ago, I was just starting in ministry, making a little above that line, and I thought, there's no way. There is no way. But it's true. And if that's true and the medium household, median household income in this neighborhood is somewhere now around $180,000, guys, we are some of the wealthiest people and the absolutely, absolutely wealthiest in the world. Now, let's, let's talk about what that means. Um, notice that Jesus isn't saying the inherent evil of wealthy people. That describes us. He's not saying that. He is saying that there is a deceitfulness of wealth. Well, what does he mean? Money is deceitful in as much as it becomes the currency of our independence from God. Does that make sense? Money itself is inherently evil when we use it as a tool to live independent of God. I hear people talk about financial freedom. I love the concept. I want to be financially free. And it's a beautiful concept and it's a beautiful thing so long as we're using our freedom to depend on Jesus when we're financially free. Are you tracking with me? I had a a friend of mine once say to me when I was preaching, don't should on me. I'm not trying to do that on you. I'm not trying to should on you and shake my finger at you. But let's hear the word of the Lord together. See, I believe that actually poverty inherently is evil. Poverty poverty inherently is evil. John, doesn't the Bible say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven? Yes. But I'm trying to find somewhere in heaven where it's describing the poor section of, of New Jerusalem. As far as I read my Bible, it says that the streets are paved with gold. There is no lack in heaven. Poverty is an expression of fallenness. And so does that mean that people who are poor are inherently evil? Not any more than people who are wealthy are inherently evil. The question is, what are we doing with our independence that finances give us? When we use our dependence on finances so that we're independent of God, we're participating in the thorny dirt. It's choking heaven's capacity to multiply its fruit through us. Oh, we may have a platform, we may have a position and power, but heaven doesn't recognize us. Heaven recognizes the authority of the poor widow who lays her might 
at the feet of the temple and that's all she had because she didn't have she had this money but her money didn't have her there's a deceitfulness of wealth i actually also believe there's a beauty of wealth what do you mean by that john well let me explain when wealth is used to fund and depend upon god it becomes a beautiful thing Think about Joseph. After he had this dream, and then he was thrown in the pit, and then he was sold into slavery, and then he was thrown in the prison, the kingdom of God was at hand. What did he do? He interpreted a dream. You remember this? A funny way to get promoted, but it happened. He became the number two most powerful person in all of the nation. What did Joseph do with his wealth? Well, he sent a, a bunch of people to... Uh, go to his dad and brothers and tell them what a bunch of losers they were. No, he didn't do that. It'd probably be tempting though. He took the wealth that he had, he knelt with them and he wept over them and he provided for them. Beautiful wealth. Why? Because there's a, a dependence upon the purposes of the kingdom. Think about Solomon. He used the incredible wealth to build a magnificent temple under the praise of God. Beautiful wealth. The widow's life, she was absolutely dirt poor. She had nothing. She took what little she had and she laid it at the temple. And Jesus said, this woman's story will be told for generations. Why? Because she had money, but her money didn't have her. It's not inherently wrong to be wealthy, but it's inherently choking about the purposes of God when we have money and we depend on it, even a fraction relative to what we depend upon God. Our dependence must be 100% on him. I could continue on and on. I have more of the Corinthians, the Corinthian church. We see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It was a beautiful thing when they collectively gathered their wealth and gave it to another community to help them and supply their need. I believe that God is looking for a people who will trust Him for provision. But you know what I think in heaven what it's going to be? That He's going to find a people who trust Him with provision. A people who will say, I have wealth and my wealth doesn't have me. Amen. This is a call to daily communion with God. This call for us, Jesus puts his finger on a couple of things, both of which touch my heart. The first of which in this call to commune with him is that we would have an emotional dependence on him. That doesn't mean we don't grow up and be adults. But it means when the going gets tough, we are already walking in friendship and communion with Him. We're not going off in some dark corner and processing all the fears and the worries because that is the expression of the thorny dirt. It chokes the life of God. How can we tend to the very faith that we need to cultivate when we're worried and overwhelmed? If you're here this morning and you're overwhelmed, God wants you to know that He's with you. He wants you to know that He's Lord. He wants you to know that He has broad shoulders. He wants you to know that He's got more seeds than you can count, more opportunities for you than you can imagine. It's not enough to just say, okay, John, stop worrying, stop it, stop it. We've got to commune with Him and who He really is. There's a second element. 
I stand with you as a brother who is wealthy beyond most of the world's comprehension. I say that as a pastor relative to the rest of the world. My question to myself is, how much does my wealth have me? I know the wealth that I have. How much does it have me? A month and a half ago, in praying, by the way, anytime I preach this, I know next week the Lord's going to call me to give a big gift. I know it. So I'm just saying it right now. I'm calling. All right, Lord? I'm going to say yes. Every time I preach this, He tests me. That's okay. That's okay with me. I'll give it away. Because I want to be fruitful. I don't need to have stuff. And I hope you, I, I think you believe that too. He called me, uh, it was a month and a half, two months ago, um, to write this big check. And it was a check that is equivalent, I don't need to give you numbers, but it's equivalent to our year's tithe. Not as a tithe, but on top of it. I'm telling you this story because I don't want you to think I'm some preacher banging the coffer wanting you to do more. I want you to be a people who are fruitful beyond your wildest dreams. And the Word of God says that we've got to preach this. I, I went to my financial advisor. Her name is Carly. <laughs> and I said, uh, Honey, uh, I know I'm the wild one and I do these crazy things and I like to adventure and taking risks, but I think God might be leading us to give this big gift here to this place. And her wheels are turning and she's thinking, She's okay. When do you think about doing it, John? She's patient with me. I, I got to be honest. I, I, I heard the Lord say give this gift. I knew the ramifications. Um, and then I want to be honest that I, dra- I drug my feet for about six weeks. Not because I wasn't willing, but I just wanted to say, you sure, Lord? Are you sure? Let me just see if something else pans out here with this. Maybe this need will get filled in another way. And you know what was going on there? Quite honestly, there's a bit of the choking of the thorny dirt going on inside of me. Now, he didn't judge me and he didn't wreck me and he didn't shame me. But I can tell you that it came up in my mind every single day until last week and I dropped that sucker in the mail and I left the U.S. post office free as a jaybird. Tweedledee, Tweedledum and Tweedlebum saw me dancing in the house. See, there's this issue that if we want to be fruitful beyond our wildest dreams, our wealth can't have us. Can't happen. You might be fruitful a little bit. A little bit. With, a bit of, with, with possessing things and it possessing you. But be free today, congregation. You don't have to hold on to your stuff. I wonder today if there's anyone like me and then you've been dragging your feet on something God's been leading you to give financially. And maybe it's to someone out in the mission field. Maybe it's to an organization. I don't know where that is. I don't know how the Lord will lead you. Maybe it's to a person. Hear the word of the Lord. You can be fruitful beyond your wildest dreams, but you've got to not be held by your wealth. I want to invite the worship team to come forward as we close. Lori, Lori Lee, I told you to wave a hand when I got to 35 minutes. I didn't see it go up. I thought you were saying amen. <laughs> I went over. I always have this great goal to do 35 minutes and it never works. Thankfully, you guys are patient with us preachers. As the team comes, I just want to encourage you. You have been called, as it says here, in the final and fourth dirt, 
to be the good soil. That you are called to be the one who hears God's Word and understands it. And you are called, Union Hill Church community, to bear a crop yielding a hundred Sixty or thirty times what was sown. You are called, as our lead pastor has been telling us and casting this vision to be people of new shoots, of deep roots and diverse fruit. And your God is sowing seed all over your life. This morning I wonder, as we come to this place of response, what dirt describes where you're at today? I want to just start off by saying there doesn't have to be an ounce of condemnation in that question. Your God loves you head over heels no matter which one you are. But I, He has a dream for you. And that dream is fully aligned with how you're wired. The dream of fruitfulness. And I wonder this morning if there's a connection issue that you want to, as you come to the communion table, as you sing songs, that you want to deal with this morning. Are you connected with what He's saying? Have you forgotten? Do you need to remember? Number two, I wonder if there's a commitment issue that you want to surrender this morning. Have things gotten tough? Is there even persecution going on because of the way you walk with them? Number two, I wonder this morning as you sing, as you take communion, if you'll surrender and refresh, commit to Him. And number three, I wonder if there's actually a communion issue. Is worry, is wealth choking what the very life of God is pulsating in you to do. I want to close by hearing this. And obviously, if you're here, you know this. But if you're new, for your sake, let me say this. This communion table, and we have two at the back, is for anyone who's a believer. You don't have to be a member of our church. We don't serve it to you. As the music plays, you come as you desire. You can go to the back or or come to the front. We also hear... As I've spoken about wealth, some of you might need to respond this morning with this little thing. This is from ancient uh, medieval times. This old purple sack we still use here. Uh, Gold laid, I guess. The Lord might be working in you. Don't resist Him. If He's calling you to break your dependence on your wealth, give a gift. That's one of the greatest ways to do it. If you're a guest here, don't feel compelled in any way to give. Let the Lord lead you. Connection. Commitment. Communion. As the team leads us into a song, I'm going to speak this over you as I close. And as our little children come in. Come in, kids. We love the sound of kids in our church. We don't try to shush them. Is that okay? I hope that if that's not okay, if you won't last long here. And obviously many of you have. We love our kids. They're, they're squirmy. And they're excited. And we're so excited they're a part of our church family. The seed of God has been and will continue to be planted in the soil of your souls. It is pulsating with all the life of Christ. Here, this church, the rule and reign of God is accessible to you today, right here in Redmond. This is a remarkable opportunity. And if you will submit to His will afresh today, choosing the way of connection commitment and communion you will see a harvest of fruitfulness beyond your wildest dreams let's respond to him as he leads us this morning